0: Episode 30 The Māori Warrior. I was born and raised in New Zealand, known in the indigenous language of this country as Aotearoa. Before the Europeans colonised this land, the people, known as Māori, thrived here with their own warrior culture. So, what did this society value? What weapons did they use? And where does the training and mindset of this culture sit today in modern Aotearoa, New Zealand? Before I begin, I must state, as with many of these types of episodes, most of what you hear today is a combination of knowledge gathered from many sources, so it is not my own. I don't claim to be an expert in any of this, so take it as you may. Also, I will try my best to pronounce the Māori words correctly, but please forgive me if I don't do them justice. My reo, or language, is rudimentary at best. Where I can, I will define a Māori term as it comes up. As you can appreciate, some of the words used in Te Rewa Māori, which is the Māori language, do not translate directly to English, but I will try my best. So bear with me. I'm going to begin with what the Māori warrior, or toa, used to fight with, his weapons. Most of this information comes from the Te Ara website. The Māori warrior used a variety of one-handed and two-handed weapons. These weapons were made from wood, stone and bone. The best-known two-handed weapons are the taiaha, te whatewha, and po A taiaha was elaborately carved, often or- ornamented with red kaka feathers, kaka is a type of bird, and wairou or dog hair. It was as much a status symbol and treasure as a weapon, and not used by ordinary members of a war party. It is usually between 1.5 and 1.8 metres, or Five to six feet in length, and is made of three main parts the arero, which is the tongue used for stabbing, the upoco, or head, the base from which the tongue protrudes, and the tenana, or body, the long flat blade which is used for striking and parrying. The tefatifa resembled an axe in shape. From a small hole in the blade hung a bunch of feathers used to distract the enemy. It was also a highly prized weapon that could be used to signal warriors to move into formation to advance, regroup and retreat. Finally the Pofenua was a weapon that was very large and heavy and had a big broad blade. The Pofenua is from the same class of weapon as others such as the Tefarafa and Tayaha, which were designed for parrying, stabbing and striking. In fact, the Pofenua was more simplistic in design compared to the Tayaha but in the hands of a professional, weapons like the po'fenua were lethally effective and could bring death with a single strike delivered at lightning speed. How were these two-handed weapons used? Each of these weapons had a long, flat blade for striking and a sharp pointed end which was thrust forward in a sparing motion. They were usually held vertically or diagonally, with the stabbing point downwards. Warriors sometimes feinted a jab with the point of the weapon, then reversed it and struck the enemy's head or shoulders with the blade. One authority states, By watching the advance foot of his opponent, the fighter would be warned of the delivery of an approaching blow by the downward clenching of the big toe, a fraction of a second before it arrived, giving him warning and that much time to prepare his parry. By the same token, the slightest twitch of the shoulder muscles also signalled the approach of a blow. By authority authority I am assuming an Englishman of the 1800s. I think a lot of this information came from Europeans when they first colonised New Zealand. There is a story of a duel between a military man and a Taiaha expert in the late 19th century. The officer was an expert swordsman and was confident that he could defeat any opponent. He was challenged by a Taiaha expert reputed to be 80 years old. With a shout and a bound, he made a sweeping blow at the legs of the Māori warrior, which was neatly parried. The Taiaha champion instantly reversed his weapon and struck a sharp upward blow with the spear-pointed end, lifting the officer clear off the floor. The duel lasted exactly 30 seconds. Frederick Manning, an early 19th century Pākehā Māori, which translates to a European who lived as part of a Māori tribe, Described duels between Maori combatants. This is what he says. The attack and defence are in the highest degree scientific. The spear shafts keep up a continuous rattle. The thrust and parry and stroke with the spear shaft follow each other with almost incredible rapidity and are too rapid to be followed by an unpractised eye. At last the brother-in-law is slightly touched. Blood also drops from our chief's thigh. The fight instantly ceases. End quote. Jewels were not fought to the death. The short single-handed weapons of the Māori were collectively termed patu. These were held in one hand while the free arm was wrapped in a thick woven mat used as a shield to ward off blows. According to a 19th century authority, in using the mēriponamu or greenstone club, the warrior tries to seize his adversary by the hair with the left hand and having his weapon firmly grasped with the right, and secured by a thong or strap wound tightly around the wrist. He thrusts or drives its sharp end against the temple of the victim. Another mode was to grasp the body of his antagonist and drive the weapon under the ribs with an upward thrust. Additional weapons used in battle included the toki or like an ads type weapon, kōpere, darts, oka, wood or bone dagger, pā tuku, uh, sorry, pā tuki, club, and Mato he human hook. Warriors selected from this array of weaponry based on their personal preference, body type, available resources, environment and training. To Māori, weapons were taonga, or treasures, and were often handed down to descendants. Weapons were made of wood, stone and bone, like I said before, which took a slow, painstaking process. Karakia, or prayer or incantations, was sometimes set over weapons to imbue them with deities and make them tapu, or sacred. So, that's weapons covered off for a Maori warrior. How were they trained? Well, warfare and weaponry were an important part of traditional Maori society. Children were prepared for war from an early age, including um, through play activities such as forms of boxing, wrestling and stick-throwing games. In the Para Whakawai, or weapons training school, young men learnt māurākau, the use of weapons. Uh, and in today's age, mauraku, sorry Morako uh, is effectively Māori martial arts. They were instructed in battle formations, weapon use, and attack and defence moves, and took part in mock battles using reeds instead of weapons. Rakanga waiwai, or skillful footwork, was emphasised and important. After Europeans arrived in New Zealand, the use of Māori weapons declined. Taiaha were quickly replaced by muskets, and over the years, parawhakawai stopped operating and many tribes lost their knowledge of those weapons. However, since the 1980s, there has been a revival of traditional weapons as part of the Māori culture renaissance. A small number of Parafakawai have been set up, mostly within a tribal framework. Weapons are used during the wero ceremony, and it means challenge in Māori, it's a ritual challenge to visitors, in kapahaka performances and whakairero, sorry, whaikorero, get that right, whaikorero, speech making, a much narrower range of weapons are now used. What strategies did Māori use? We now know what sort of weapons they used, we know just very briefly, historically, how the weapons um, fell out of use with Europeans coming to the country, but now there's a renaissance of the bringing them back. But traditionally, what was Māori warfare like? The following information comes from the Te Rua Peka, Peka website. In the eyes of some of the early European observers, Māori behaved with unbridled savagery. These observers were entirely wrong. Warfare in Māori society was ritualised and controlled according to an established set of rules known as tikanga. I often translate tikanga as etiquette or correctness. The decision to take up arms was usually a last resort, preceded by careful deliberation. The fighting was fierce and bloody, however Māori war parties did not usually seek to annihilate their enemy. Traditional warfare was not about wanton killing and destruction, it was about seeking utu, repayment for past wrongs. As with any historical culture we have to be careful of where our information is coming from. The early European settlers were viewing Māori culture through their lens and it is often their thoughts written down that we first see and use as evidence for the indigenous culture. Like many peoples the Māori passed knowledge down orally and since the 1980s these stories are coming to light and our view of early Māori is slowly changing with these narratives. The concept of utu really is the key to understanding traditional Māori warfare. Utu is sometimes translated as revenge, but this is incorrect. Utu actually means repayment, or balanced by an equivalent. If an offence was committed, the party wronged would seek repayment to restore their mana. A failure to extract utu would cause the offended party to lose face to suffer a loss of mana. In the worst-case scenario, a desire for utu could lead to war. Without a paramount chief or a formal justice system, Māori had their own ways of resolving disputes. Some rangatira, which were tribal leaders, acted as mediators, negotiating peaceful solutions which satisfied the need for utu and maintained the mana of the feuding parties. Just a note on mana. This word encompasses a group of ideals such as prestige, honour, status and spiritual power. It was and still is very important to Māori. In more serious disputes the sending of toa muru, a stripping party, was a way to obtain utu without actually killing anybody or at least without killing anybody important. A toa was a hostile expedition where a party of warriors was sent to plunder or destroy property belonging to those who had committed the offence Tawamudu were very dramatic, the warriors brandishing their weapons and making a great display of aggression. However, physical violence didn't happen, or if it did, it was directed towards a few low-ranking individuals. Despite appearances, Tawamuru were a means of maintaining the peace. Warfare often arose from an act which affected the mana of a group. The murder of a tapu or sacred or special person was the most serious offence. However, wars were also fought over seemingly minor incidents such as petty theft or insulting words. The Girls' War is an example. It happened in 1830 in the Bay of Islands and began with a dispute between four young Maori women of high rank. Two of them were the former wives of a particular whale ship captain and the other pair were his current wives. The argument began as a play fight but it escalated and the women uttered dire curses at each other. The situation was serious because the women had insulted the mana of each other's chiefly relatives. In the end, the exchange of insults led to a battle during which a number of warriors were killed. The rationale for taking up arms was presented in terms of mana and utu, and the usual purpose of warfare was to settle disputes. However, underlying economic motives did come into play. Māori, like people everywhere, were sometimes driven by a desire to obtain property or to access some natural resource. In some cases, an insult to the mana of the antagonists could provide a convenient justification for confiscating property or taking over gardening land. Planning an attack required a great deal of work, especially if it was directed against hapu living far away. To begin with, there were arrangements to be negotiated with potential allies. There was visiting to be done, feasting, discussions and debates, Then there were the practical considerations. Extra crops were planted well before a long distance campaign. Some of the harvest went with the war party and the rest was to make sure there was enough food and seed stock for the following year. Haste and stealth were not necessarily important. It was not unusual for the enemy to hear word of the attack well in advance, allowing them plenty of time to prepare. It is important to remember that Māori warriors were not professional soldiers they were also the bulk of the male workforce. When the men were off fighting, they were clearly not available to undertake the usual work. Furthermore, many women and older children would travel with the war party to provide logistical support. The withdrawal of the most capable men and women from the workforce inevitably put pressure on the resources of the hapu. Once the battle began, each unit would function in a separate but coordinated manner. Rangatera, remember those are the leaders, were not generals in the European sense. They led by example, fighting alongside their men. The course of a battle depended upon the situation. Gaining access to an enemy par was quite different to skirmishing skirmishing in the forest or on the beach. A pa, by the way, is a fortification. Without guns, Māori couldn't kill each other from afar. The fighting was very real, hard fought, with warriors and civilians killed at close quarters. There hasn't been a lot of biological anthropology carried out on Māori skeletons because ko iwi, or human remains, are tapu, remember that word means sacred, in the extreme. However, some of the skeletons which have been examined show that person died violently by a sharp blow to the head with a patu-like weapon. Remember I mean, patu kind of means club. The fighting was constrained and controlled by tikanga, which are their rules of engagement, that both sides understood. Although the fighting was brutal and bloody, the objective wasn't necessarily to annihilate the enemy. Most war parties set out to kill at least some people. However, it was not uncommon for a victorious war party to withdraw, having killed a sufficient number of people to achieve utu. If the warring hapu were connected by kinship, a handful of deaths would suffice. The fighting would stop and peace talks would begin. Battles between non-related hapu were more protracted and brutal. The survivors of a hapu, defeated, might be driven from their lands, forced to seek an entirely new place to live. By the way, a hapu was a sub-tribe or clan, the smallest political unit within Māori's society. An individual could actually be related to, or linked to, more than one hapu, which could make things interesting when disputes between hapu occurred. Māori warfare resulted in fewer deaths than might be thought due to only fighting in summer. And having defensible pā fortifications. So what is a pā? You heard it earlier. A pā was a fortified village complete with a wooden palisade wall and trenches. Yes, the English first encountered trench warfare while fighting the Māori back in the 1800s. Pā sites can still be visited around Aotearoa New Zealand today and often found at high points. This made sense of course as this gave a wide field of view and the higher ground was easier to defend. Depending on the iwi, which means tribe, uh, some pa were lived in full time, other times pa were just ready for when a hapu or iwi needed to move its people into a fortified place. So what is left of the Māori warrior culture in the 21st century? There is a renaissance happening in my country. Te reo Māori, that's the Māori language, is no longer a dying language. People want to speak it, and I believe that soon our mainstream educators will be required to. With the revival of the language comes the revival of the culture. I teach in a state co-ed school, where over 50% of the students are Māori. Although I am not fluent, I use Māori words every day. I sing the school song, which is in Māori, and Māori immersion schools, known as Kura Kaupapa, are dotted around the country. Families can choose their children to a school where Māori is the main language of instruction. Māori culture is still very much recognised. The haka, the formal challenge made famous by the New Zealand rugby team, is known worldwide. The haka asks the audience, What are you made of? Are you up to the challenge? These used to be performed before warriors went off to battle. The haka must be done with passion and pride. You must show your commitment. Another type of haka is performed at the start of a pōwhiri. Each year we welcome students to our school with a pōwhiri, a formal welcome. The etiquette, or tikanga, around the pōwhiri has its origins in times when you may not know the intentions of your neighbouring hapu. You cautiously welcome them on to your marae, which is the meeting grounds. But the men stay at the front while the talks begin, and only after the hōngi, or sharing of breath, and shaking of hands and eating together, does everyone relax and become unified. To the casual observer one might think the women are only second tier but this is a mistake. The women are at the back, protected by their men in case of hostilities but should one of their speaking males say something they disagree with then they will not support that speaker with a song after his kōrero or speech. It's a very subtle but important note to make. It is also the women who run the marai. They call for when the kai or food is ready and the men have to shut up. It's time to stop talking and come and eat. Traditionally, both men and women made the decisions. The Māori word for warrior toa is used to describe our modern warriors as well. If we talk about our wahine toa, we're talking about our female warriors. This might be used in the New Zealand military or our national women's rugby team. This branding has even been used for a woman's apparel label. Using the word toa for someone is quite a compliment. That person is considered strong, brave, and all those other warrior characteristics I go on about on this podcast. We are in an an interesting time in New Zealand. With the renaissance of Maori culture, the toa, or warrior, is also being redefined in our modern society. So as you can see, Maori culture and some of the values of that warrior culture are still present today. I believe this culture will continue to flourish in Aotearoa, New Zealand, but in what form I am unsure. You see, like many indigenous cultures around the world, the Māori were not originally one unified nation. They were made up of large tribes called iwi They were broken down into the smaller groups known as hapū. Therefore, each tribe has its own customs and ways of doing things. Whenever an aspect of Maori culture is brought up, it needs to be discussed thoroughly to decide what a modern national version will look like. A recent example is Matariki. This is the Maori New Year. Just last year, which should have been 2022, it became recognised as a national holiday here. Matariki is determined by the falling and rising of the Matariki constellation, known as Pleiades, overseas depending on what area of Aotearoa New Zealand you live, will depend on when this happens. So the actual holiday had to be decided by a committee that took that into account. Well, there you have it. A brief look into Māori warrior culture. I hope you took something away from today's episode. If you like what you hear on my podcast, please let others know about it and send me a comment either through my email, podcast at gmail.com or my Instagram account by the same name. Time for today's quote. Today I'm going to use a fakatoki, which is the Māori word for a famous phrase or quote. This is what it says. He aha, te mea nui ke au? Māku e ke atu, he tangata, he tangata, he tangata. This translates to, What is the most important thing in the world? I would reply that it is, people, people, people.